I love Paul Moomaw. <laughs> What's funny is they cut out, I was waiting for it, they cut out. At the end of that video, Paul let out this big scream as if only Cameron Sprinkle could let out the scream. And I guess they felt it was so shocking, we should probably not let you all see that. So, Well, hey, good morning. My name is Kevin Russell. I am the Groups and Discipleship Pastor here at Genesis Church. And today we're beginning, beginning a new series we're calling Through the Lens. And we're going to spend the next seven weeks together here on Sunday morning looking at the seven recorded miracles in the Gospel of John. So Jesus performed uh, dozens, probably hundreds of miracles throughout his ministry. But in the Gospel of John, there are seven that are recorded. And we're going to take one a week and walk through them. And, you know, we're calling it Through the Lens because much like the lens of a camera captures and reveals an image, the miracles of Jesus capture and reveal an image of God. And I think most often that the image of God that Jesus wanted to reveal to us through his miracles was that of a loving Heavenly Father. And that's my prayer for us over the next seven weeks, and we're praying as a team and as a leadership. I pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal God as Father to this church family in some fresh and transforming ways over the next couple of months. And so would you pray with me? I'm going to pray for our morning and just, and just for the next seven weeks. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for today. Today is the day that you have made. We rejoice and we are glad to be here. And I trust that you have each one of us here for a reason, Father. God, I pray that you would pour out a spirit of wisdom and revelation on our church. Would you reveal yourself as our Heavenly Father? Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts that we might know the hope that we have in you as your sons and daughters? I pray that today you would speak to us, Father. You have words of life. I pray that you would speak those words of life into our hearts today. Open our ears, God. We want to hear from you, not only today, but over the next seven weeks, Father, we just ask you to give us a fresh view of who you are as our Heavenly Father. And I pray more than anything, Jesus, that we're able to exalt you and lift you up and that you would draw men and women to you. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You know, my favorite topic to study and to teach on is the life and ministry of Jesus. I love studying, teaching, learning more about the life and ministry of Jesus. And so this morning, to kind of kick off the series, I'm just going to share a little bit with you about uh, some tidbits and some, and some pieces of the puzzle of Jesus' life and ministry. And so I have found that one of the most helpful ways to study the life and ministry of Christ is by using a map. And I know that most of you cannot see this map from your seats, but we've thrown, up, thrown uh, this same map, map up on the screen, and so I hope you'll follow along. Um, I've found that when you use a map, to, to study Jesus, what happens is this. He becomes a whole lot more real to you. See, you realize that Jesus was a real man and he lived in a real place, in a real community. He had real family and real friends. He lived in a real time and real space. And so I'm hoping that this morning we just kind of catch a little bit of glimpse of who the real Jesus is by studying a little bit of his life. And so what we're going to do today, before we get to the first miracle, is I'm just going to walk through the life of Jesus really quick from the time he was born all the way up to he shows up and does his first miracle. So let's do a quick review here. Uh, where's Jesus born? What city is Jesus born in? 
Bethlehem. I don't know about you, but when I first started studying the Bible, I got Bethlehem and Nazareth and Jerusalem all mixed up. I didn't know where he was born, where he died, where he lived, but he was born in Bethlehem. And, and shortly after he's born in Bethlehem, he makes his way north to Jerusalem. You see Jerusalem right, right above uh, Bethlehem. What's he go up to Jerusalem for? His parents take him up there as a young infant uh, to dedicate him in the temple. After they dedicate him in the temple, he comes back, they come back down to Bethlehem, where Joseph and Mary and Jesus will live right there in Bethlehem, probably for a couple of years. And then one night, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. Remember this? And the angel tells Joseph, get out of here. Go to Egypt. King Herod is searching for and is trying to find and kill this baby, this Messiah baby that he has heard about. And so Joseph and Mary take Jesus, and they leave Bethlehem, and they're going to go kind of southwest here, down here to Egypt, off the map. And they're going to spend several years in Egypt. We're not sure how many, probably just a few years. But eventually, an angel once again appears to Joseph in a dream and says, okay, time to go to Nazareth. And so Joseph takes Mary and Jesus, probably a young child at this point, and they move up here to Nazareth. You see this up here? It's up just left of the Sea of Galilee. Do you like how I put blue in there in case that helps you, a little water? So this blue body of water up here is the Sea of Galilee. We hear, we hear talk about that all the time. Down here, it's the Dead Sea, okay? The Jordan River is what connects the Sea of Galilee, runs all the way down to the Dead Sea. So Joseph takes Mary and Jesus, and they go up to Nazareth. And that's where Jesus is going to grow up. And it says in Luke 2.52 that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And we don't know a whole lot about his childhood. We do have one account. Remember what account we have of his childhood? Anybody remember this? He's in the temple. He's 12 years old, right? And so, so here's what would have happened. Every year, Joseph and Mary would have taken Jesus as a good Jewish family. They would have probably went with uh, a couple dozen, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe close to 100 people, and they would have caravaned from Nazareth. They would have went down the Jordan River. That was the safest route to travel all the way up here to Jerusalem, and they would go every year for Passover. That's what they would do. Well, one year, they go up to Jerusalem for Passover. Now, it's down on the map, but geographically, it's up. When you go over to Israel, you actually go up to Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem is one of the most elevated cities in the world. And so they go up to Jerusalem, and they go to there for Passover, and then they leave Jerusalem, and they head back to Nazareth. And some point in time, maybe about halfway home, they realize what? Jesus isn't with them, right? They've left their 12-year-old son back up in Jerusalem. And so they frantically turn around, and they head back up to Jerusalem. Keep in mind, the road they would have traveled along, along the Jordan River, was very dangerous and treacherous. And so all along the way, they're wondering if their 12-year-old son, Jesus, has fallen off a cliff, has died along the way, has been taken by bandits. They just don't know. They finally get to Jerusalem. They spend a few days in Jerusalem frantically looking for him. They finally found him. Where is he at? He's in the temple. He's learning from the teachers of the law. And they come to him and they say, Jesus, what are you doing? You had us anxiously searching for you. And he says, didn't you know? I had to be in where? My father's house. At 12 years old, we get a glimpse into Jesus' heart as a young boy, young man. 12 years old, we see that Jesus had a lifelong pursuit of his heavenly father. That's how Jesus related to God. I think that's how he wants us to relate to him as well. When's the next time we see Jesus? We don't see him again until he's an adult. Where is it? Anybody know? Shout it out. When's the first time we see Jesus as an adult in the scriptures? Anybody know? Real loud. He gets baptized. Oh, yeah, some of y'all shaking your head. Oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. 
See, this is good. This is good. You didn't know you were going to get a lesson. Okay, so at some point in time, he's 30 years old. He leaves Nazareth. He travels back down the Jordan River over here to Bethany, just right of the Jordan River, right above the Dead Sea. That's where John the Baptist is doing ministry. John the Baptist was his cousin. By the way, John the Baptist is different than the gospel writer John, just to make that clear. Sometimes that gets confusing. The gospel writer John was a young boy. He's one of the first uh, young boys. He was a young teenager. And he was one of Jesus' first followers. Uh, He'll become one of Jesus' closest friends and one of the 12 apostles. John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. Remember this? He's born about six months before Jesus. And unfortunately, about halfway into Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist is arrested and put in prison by King Herod because King Herod is after this guy, Jesus. This movement's growing. And so he arrests Jesus, uh, arrests Herod. uh, Wait, who does he arrest? Herod arrests John the Baptist. I got so much material to cover, I'm trying to get through it all. And he throws him in prison, and eventually John the Baptist is beheaded. But for now, at this point in the story, he still has his head. And so he is baptizing, he's baptizing down here at the Jordan River. And Jesus shows up to get baptized, okay? And uh, he gets baptized, you might know, pivotal moment in the life of Jesus. Comes out of the water, out of the Jordan River, and what happens? The Father audibly speaks to Jesus and says, this is my son whom I love and with you I'm well pleased. I love that. What a moment for Jesus to hear from his heavenly father, the audible voice. And by the way, side note, parents, boy, you got to tell your children this. You got to tell your children, you're my son, you're my daughter. I love you, and I'm well pleased with you. Tell them at night when they go to bed. Tell them often. If Jesus had to hear this, how much more do our children need to hear this? For that matter, if Jesus needed to hear that, how much more do you and I need to hear God say to us, you're my son, you're my daughter, I love you, and I'm pleased with you. So he gets baptized. After he gets baptized, what what happens next? He heads over here to the Judean wilderness. You see, just left the Dead Sea. It's kind of hard to read. It says, Wilderness of Judah. And so he goes over to the Judean wilderness, and he's going to spend 40 days there fasting and praying. And he gets tempted by Satan a few times. He resists all those temptations, overcomes those. He makes his way back out of the wilderness, and he comes back over to Bethany, where John the Baptist and his disciples are. So he gets baptized there, goes to the wilderness, comes back. All right, open up your Bibles. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. If you've got your phones... You can turn to John chapter 1. Oh, I want to keep going. There's so many things I want to say. Hey, listen, you know what? Paul and Ben are both out of town. I thought we could do a two-hour service today. What do you think? (laughs) You know what I mean? That is one-hour stuff. (laughs) This may be the last time I preach. Okay, Luke John, Luke John 129. Paul sent me a text message this morning, so sweet. You know, Paul's in Albania, and Ben is in Haiti, and he sends a text message to me and to Steve. Steve's preaching over at Carmel, and he sent a message all four of us. Paul said, hey, uh, we're covering a whole lot of ground this morning, aren't we? I, was like, I thought that was funny. Uh, I won't use that in the second service. Okay, chapter, <laughs> chapter, one, chapter 1, verse 29. Okay, where are we? Here we go. Chapter 1, verse 29, the next day, John, this is John the Baptist, not John the gospel writer. John the gospel writer is recording the accounts. 
But John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. He's been in the wilderness, and he's coming back from the wilderness. And John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so two of John the, John the Baptist's disciples hear this. Now, who are those two disciples? One of them is John the Gospel writer. The other is Andrew, okay? And so they hear John the Baptist say this about Jesus, and they go up and approach Jesus. And they basically interact with Jesus a little bit, and they're essentially saying, hey, we'd like to hang out with you. This, you're the guy John the Baptist has been teaching us about. We want to spend some time with you. And Jesus says to them, come and see. He said, let's spend some time together. Now listen, some of you this morning are at that stage right now in your relationship with God. You're at the come and see stage. That's an exciting place to be. I remember being there. Some things are happening in your life, and God seems to kind of be draw, kind of drawing you to himself. And Jesus is essentially saying to you right now the same thing he said to these early disciples 2,000 years ago. He's saying, come and see. And you're coming to Genesis Church, and you never imagined you'd be sitting here this morning listening to me, and you just see some things happening in your life. I'm just telling you, Jesus is saying, come and see. And if you're in that place right now, I want to encourage you to just ask Jesus from your heart to reveal himself to you. Just say, Jesus, if you're real, I want to encounter you. And Jesus said that those who seek him with all of their heart would find him. And so if you're at that come and see stage, you just seek after Jesus. He's going to show himself to you. So he says, come and see these first two guys. And it says in John 139, look at verse 39. It says, come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and they saw where he was staying. They went and spent some time with him. It says they spent that day with him. You see that phrase? It was about four in the afternoon. You can do a little math and do a little homework there, and you realize they probably spent about four hours with Jesus. They probably spent about a half hour with him. What'd they do? First two followers go and hang out with Jesus. Jesus' ministry just beginning. He didn't know them. They didn't know him. They went to get to know him a little bit, right? They spent, I like to say they just went and had a cup of coffee. In fact, my wife and I, back in 2010, had the privilege of going to Israel. We visited Israel about five years ago, and they have a coffee shop there today that they claim is the same coffee shop where Jesus met and spent time with these first two disciples. Look at this coffee shop. There it is, right there. Look at that. Starbucks ripped them off. Can you believe that? Okay. I don't know if, I don't know if, I don't know if they had coffee during Jesus' day. This is real. My wife and I, we were, uh, when we were in Israel, we were going to visit Bethlehem. We got off the bus, the tour bus, we turned the corner, and I saw this, and I just cracked up. And I've been waiting for about five years to try to show this in a setting like this. So, uh, so there's stars and bucks right there in Israel. Let me just say this. Visiting Israel was a life-changing experience. Life-changing. Um, your, your relationship with God absolutely is transformed when you begin to walk in the places where Jesus literally walked 2,000 years ago. And uh, I hope to take uh, some of you all there. I've had a chance of going twice. Uh, I have uh, expressed a desire to Paul and the leadership of the church. I'd love to take a group over to Israel sometime. I'm even praying about taking a group in the summer of 2016, a year and a half from now. And so uh, if that sparks your interest, say, come, come say hello and tell, and tell me about that. Um, so who knows? But I'd love to take you over there. It is a transformative um, experience. Okay, so the next day, look down at chapter 1, um, verse 43. This is all happening 
in the first week of his ministry, right? Verse 43, it says, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for where? Galilee. Okay. Now, um, we don't have the map. If you can throw the map back up, uh, I'm throwing her a curveball. Here's the deal. The northern part of Israel is called Galilee. There's some other regions, but this is a basic lesson here. The northern part is Galilee. The southern part is Judea. And so Jesus, again, is down here in Bethany. He's called, and he spent some time with his first, his first couple followers, and they're going to take off, and they're going to go up to Galilee, up to Cana. And so they're, where are they going to do that? They're going to attend a wedding, and this is where his first recorded miracle takes place. And so before, his, before this wedding, Jesus goes to Philip, and Philip says, uh, and he says to Philip, follow me. He says, come attend this wedding with me. And Philip finds Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is actually, he's down in here, down here in Bethany with John the Baptist and some of these other disciples. But Nathaniel is actually from Cana. We find that out later on in, in the Bible. And so Philip and Nathaniel, Peter and Andrew, and John, the writer of the gospel, first five followers, they go with Jesus to this wedding in Cana. And we pick it up in John chapter 2, verses 1. We're going to read this whole story of turning water into the wine. It's only 12 verses long. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Follow along with me. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet, the head waiter. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. There's the miracle some point in time when they filled the jars with water to the time the head waiter drinks it, it's been turned into wine. And it says, verse uh, 9, the master of the banquet tasted the water, been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside. He calls the groom and he says, hey, everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Even the, even the groom didn't know. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, they went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples and there they stayed a few days. Here's my question. Why did Jesus perform this miracle? Why did he perform this miracle? I mean, on the surface, it seems like it could be just a, uh, not much more than a cool party trick. He turns water into wine. But to understand the significance of this miracle, we must understand the significance of what it meant for a Jewish family to run out of wedding in first century Palestine. In our culture today, a wedding typically takes, takes place over two days. But in the context of this story, a wedding lasts much longer usually six to seven days, and it was a much grander affair in many different respects. It was a small town, and in a small town like Cana, it was very much a community-wide event. This would not have been just family and friends. Keep in mind, this is a day and time when life was very difficult. We can't relate. Our lives are very comfortable. We have a lot of uh, luxuries and, uh, and abundance, and they, they, they didn't have that. 
There was a lot of poverty and a lot of hard work. And so this week of festivity was one of the most anticipated occasions in life for everybody in the village. And hospitality in this culture was a really big deal. Running out of wine at a wedding would have been very shameful and humiliating to this couple. In fact, you could be legally sued for running out of wine at a wedding. So this, the best day of their lives is on the brink of turning into the worst day of their life. I mean, if there's any one day in your life when you don't want any unexpected problems, isn't it your wedding day? I mean, especially ladies. I mean, you just don't want anything to go wrong on the wedding day. Well, this is where Mary, the mother of Jesus, steps in. Mary played a very prominent role in this wedding. Um, the couple must have been close to Mary. Some scholars speculate that maybe it was even a niece or a nephew of hers uh, because she was in on running out of wine. She knew why they ran out of wine. The head waiter didn't know. The groom didn't know. But somehow Mary knew. She had to be close to the inner circle of two or three people who found out that they had run out of wine. And she had the authority to give the servants orders. And so she was very close to this wedding. And Cana is only three or four miles from Nazareth. And so growing up in Nazareth, they certainly would have had maybe friends or extended family there. And so Mary has this crisis situation on her hands. And what does she do? She does the right thing, right? She goes to Jesus. And she says, Jesus, we need your help. Now, Jesus responds by saying, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. That seems a bit of a harsh response, right, to our 21st century American culture ears, but it was not a harsh response. It actually, the term he uses when he says woman was a term of great endearment and admiration, and so he's not being harsh. He's not upset with her or frustrated with her. He is trying to say, what, what do you want me to do here? And what does Jesus do? He helps. He helps her. That's the first reason why Jesus performed this miracle. He simply wanted to help. If you're taking notes, it's there in your notes. Jesus wanted to help. We don't know if Mary was anticipating Jesus would perform a miracle. We don't know that. We don't know why she would think that. But she obviously knew that Jesus could help. And, you know, sometimes we tend to think that God is a macro God, that God is keeping the universe uh, in order. He's keeping this earth spinning and the sun shining. And so he doesn't have time to take interest in the affairs of man. Maybe you've heard someone say something like this. I don't want to bother God with my problems. He has much bigger, bigger issues on his hands. You ever heard anybody say that before? Can I just tell you something? I hear something like that, that breaks my heart. You know why? Someone who says that doesn't know the heart of their heavenly father. That's a faulty view of God. 1 Peter 5, 7 says this. Cast all. How much? All. Big things? All. Little things? All. Cast all of your anxiety. Some of your versions may say cast all your cares on him. Why? Why? Say it out loud. He cares for you. He cares. Jesus cared. And our Heavenly Father cares for us. If Jesus cared enough to help his mom save this couple from shame and humiliation, don't you think he cares enough about helping you in your time of need? God is great not just because nothing is too big for him. He's great because nothing is too small for him. He wants to help us in our time of need. So here's the question. Here's the question. Where do you need God's help? in your life today. Where do you need Jesus' help today? You know, we all need help in some way. Whether we need help at work, 
or whether we need help in our marriages, or whether we need help in our parenting, whether we need help at school and making decisions with our health, setting our priorities, we all need help. In our relationship with God, we all need help. Mary said, I need your help, Jesus. They have no more wine. And some of you are sitting here today, and the truth is, you don't have any left in the tank. You're out of energy. You're out of strength. You're at a place maybe in your life right now where you feel like you're out of options. Maybe there's no more money. Maybe you feel like there's no more second chances. Some of you, some of you have no more excuses. Some of you feel like you have no more hope. Let me say this. I, I prayed, prepared for this message. If, you sat, if you're sitting here this morning, if you have said in some form or fashion this week, I don't have any more hope. I want you to know something. Your heavenly father heard you say that this week. And he hears you, and he heard you say that, and he wants you to know that, yes, you do. You have hope in Jesus Christ, and he wants to help you. God is a God who wants to help us. He cares about us. Look at a few of these passages in Psalm that describe how much God wants to help us. The psalmist says in Psalm 18:6, in my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to, to my God for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. Oh, isn't that encouraging? That God hears your cry, that God hears your, your, your request for help. What's the next one? The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy, and with my song, I praise him. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble, ever-present. He's always right there, ready and willing to help you. Psalm 121, 2, I love this one. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Mary knew where to turn for help. She brought the problem to Jesus, and she turned to the servants and said, do whatever he tells you. That may be the best advice any mom could ever give anybody, right? If you ask me, want, hey, Kevin, boil down uh, a word of advice. If you could give any any phrase, one, one sentence of advice to anybody on the face of the earth about anything, I think I'd say this. I think I'd say, listen to Jesus and do what he says. Listen to Jesus and do what he says. Listen to what Jesus said about how he said it. He said it in his own words in John 10, 27. He said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Ah, what great advice. Maybe you need to be reminded this morning to listen to Jesus and do what he says. And what I'm about to say here may sound a bit harsh, but you need to hear it because it's really important. It's one thing to cry out to God for help. It's another thing to understand how God works. Don't ask God for help if you're not willing to do what he says. Don't ask him for help if you're not willing to confess your sin. Don't ask for help if you're not willing to end the relationship. Don't ask for help if you're not willing to humble yourself. Don't ask for help if you're not willing to forgive. Don't ask your help. Don't ask for help if you're not willing to obey. God says, I will help you, but my love language is obedience. And so if you come to me and ask me for help, I want you to do what I ask you to do. But Jesus tells the servants, go fill six jars, stone jars full of water. And they fill the jars of water. And they take him to the head waiter, and he tastes it, and he's unbelievable. He's like, this is the best wine. Why'd you save the best for last? Jesus saves the best for last. Why'd you do that? 
Why did Jesus do that? Right? He could have turned it into cheap box wine you buy at the gas station. Some of you drink that stuff. Um, <laughs> speaking truth. But why did he do that? Because he was good and he's gracious. Because God is gracious and he's generous, and that's what God is. When we ask him for help, he does immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. And that's the second reason why Jesus performed the miracle, because he wanted to reveal his glory. Verse 11 says, when Jesus did what Jesus did here in Cana was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Let's think about this for a minute. What part of the miracle do you think revealed God's, Jesus' glory? You know, when it comes to the miracles of Jesus, we tend to be fascinated with the power of Jesus to do the miracle. And to some degree, that's good. I mean, the power of God's amazing, right? I mean, he takes simple water and turns it into fine wine. How does that happen? Where did he get the grapes? That's what I want to know. And wine must age, and fine wine takes years to age, and Jesus does it like that. How does he do that? That is amazing, and that's powerful. But can I tell you this? I don't think Jesus was trying to draw his disciples' attention to the power to turn the water into wine. I think if we are drawn to that, we're missing the point. I think Jesus was drawing their attention to something much greater. In fact, throughout his ministry, he actually downplayed his miracles. It wasn't about the power of the miracles. It was about believing in the Father that the miracles revealed. That that was Jesus' whole goal of his ministry. Listen to what Jesus says at the very end of his ministry. John chapter 17, verse 26. This is his last prayer before he gets arrested. The very end of his ministry, and Jesus says this in prayer to his Father. He says, I have made you known, Father. I've made you known to them. And I'll continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself, myself may be in them. I think you could boil down all of Jesus' teaching and all of his miracles to this one point, that Jesus, his whole life, was trying to make the Father known. He was trying to reveal. They, listen, they all believed in God. They were Israelites. Their ancestors had been rescued by God from Egypt. They celebrated the Passover every year. They knew they believed in God. Jesus was trying to reveal that God has the heart of a heavenly father. And I know right now that one of the ways God is working in your life and in mine is that he's trying to reveal himself as a loving heavenly father. And I think that's something he's wanting to do in our church family in this season of life we're in. Jesus said in John 14, if you really knew me, you would know my father. Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? At least believe in the evidence of the miracles and the works themselves. He's saying, the miracles and my, and my miracles reveal that God is our Heavenly Father. He wanted to view, Jesus wanted them, and he wants you and I to view God as a loving Father. And this is critically important because how we view God determines how we relate to God. I love this quote by J.F. Packer. I think I've shared it here before, but I love it so much, I'm sharing it again. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, that's a pretty bold statement. Listen to what he's going to say. Find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Do you view God as your heavenly father? And listen, it's one thing to know it up here. It's something totally different to relate to him from your heart. 
Now keep in mind, this is the very first miracle that Jesus performed, and his five disciples had only been around him for about a week. And so they're just getting to know him, and this is early on in his ministry, and very few people witnessed the miracle. Mary was there. Jesus' brothers were there. His five disciples. So just a small group is that Jesus performs this miracle in front of. And so they certainly would have been in awe of his power, no doubt about that. But more than believing in the miracles, Jesus wanted them to believe in him. And that's what I think we're going to hit throughout this series. More than believing in the miracles, Jesus wanted them to believe in him. John chapter 2, verse 11 says this. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, the third reason we see Jesus performing this miracle is this. He wanted his disciples to believe in him. So here's my question. Do you believe? Do you believe? I mean, do you really believe? Is that me? Oh, there you go. In 2010, my wife and I went to Israel together. And one of the places you visit when you get there is the garden tomb. You got a photo of it. And uh, there it is. And so you can see the opening mid in the middle of the photo. You can see the stones they have built in there to help kind of reinforce the structure. You can see it's beautiful. That's why they call it a garden tomb. It's placed in the garden. There's two different locations that archaeologists and historians think that may have been the actual tomb that Jesus was buried in. This is one of the tombs. And actually, most historians and archaeologists think it was the other location that was probably the real one. Uh, but the uh, Catholic Church has built a, a church on top of that one, and it's very ornamental. And it's just not as cool as this one, right? I mean, like, this one feels like it should be it, right? So anyways, we're at this garden tomb. You can show the next photo. And, uh, and you walk in to the garden tomb, and what's there? Nothing. My wife and I, take, show, show the next one on the door. There's my beautiful wife, Paige. Uh, and... Um, that's before we had kids. Don't we look stress-free? Um, <laughs> like, oh, if we only knew. Um, he is not here, for he is risen. See, here's the thing. When I was there in 2010, I was there in 2010. I asked myself, I sit at that garden tomb. I remember clear as day having the conversation. Do I really believe? I mean, do I really believe that a Jewish boy was born 2,000 years ago of a virgin? Do I really believe that he was God's son and they lived a perfect life? Do I really believe that he was put on a cross and he death, he died a brutal, horrendous death, a death that I deserve? Do I really believe that he was buried in one of those tombs? And do I really believe that three days later he came back to life and he walked out of that tomb? And do I really believe that over the next 30 days he revealed himself to 500 people? And do I really believe that he ascended into heaven? And do I really believe that right now as you and I sit here in this room, in the spiritual realm, he sits at the right hand of our heavenly father and he sees me preaching to you and he sees uh, you sitting here and he knows you and he knows me and Jesus is sitting at the right hand and the Bible says he's waiting to return. Do I really believe that one day he's going to come back? 
He's going to break forth out of heaven into earth, and he's going to restore all things and make all things new. And each one of us, you and me, are all going to stand before him face to face. Do I really believe it? That all went through my head at the garden tomb. And I remember saying, yes, I did. I said, yes, I believe. Now, what's interesting is two years later, I had the privilege of going back to Israel. And once again, I find myself in the garden tomb, but something different happened. This time, as I'm sitting with a group of guys, and we're sitting in the garden, and we're, somebody's reading a devotional, I'm talking to the Lord, and I'm praying, and I'm recalling that conversation. All of a sudden, I believe, I believe the Lord brought that conversation from two years ago when I was sitting there back to my mind. And when I had two years ago in 2008, I processed it in my mind. In this moment, all of a sudden, the Lord started working on my heart. And tears started streaming down my face. And he led me to a passage, 1 Peter 1.8. Here's what it says. Though you have not seen him, Jesus, with your own eyes, you love him. It was like, it was like he's saying it right to me. It's like the Holy Spirit was saying, Kevin, even though you've not seen him with your own eyes, you love him. And the verse goes on. And even though you do not see him right now, Kevin, you believe in him. And you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And in that moment, I'm weeping in the garden tomb. And what I had said two years earlier in my head, now I said from my heart, and I just closed my eyes, and I remember clear as day, just as if he was sitting right there in front of me, I told him, I said, Jesus, even though I can't see you, I believe in you, and I love you, and my life is yours. Do you believe? Romans 10.9 says this. Romans 10.9 says that if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. For it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved, but it's from your heart that you believe and are justified. Maybe you've never, never really believed. Maybe this morning you're sitting here and for the first time in your life, you're ready to believe. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning and you gotta be honest, you've never declared with your mouth out loud, Jesus is my Lord. Maybe you've never prayed that prayer. I'd love to give you an opportunity to pray that prayer. I'd love to give you an opportunity to say that. After service, when we end, when we end I'm going to be right over here in front. You, if you've never said that and you're ready to say that, I want you to come forward at, at the end of the service. Just talk with me. Let's pray. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to pray for you. Maybe you're sitting here today and you've been a Christian for quite some time, but you need to be reminded that this is all true. And if we really believe, oh, the hope we have. Our hope is not in the things of this world. If we really believe, shouldn't that shape every aspect of our life? If we really believe, shouldn't it affect our whole outlook on life? Our relationships, how we view ourselves, how we spend our time, how we set our priorities. Oh, I hope you will believe. I hope you believe that your heavenly Father loves you and he sent his son to die on the cross for you. And that because of that, we have a hope that will not fail. Would you stand with me? We're going to worship. I'd love to pray as we continue to worship. Father, I just pray you would just reveal to us, reveal to us in a fresh way, Father.
Some of us have heard this for years. God, would you reveal to us in a fresh way that you are our Heavenly Father, that you long to relate to us in that way, and that we are your children. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.